This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. I want to take you to the book of Hebrews today. I want to talk a little bit about the importance of taking a spiritual inventory in our lives. And we'll use uh, Hebrews, the latter verses of chapter 5 and the first couple verses of chapter 6 to understand some of the elementary or foundational principles of Christianity. Let's start off, in fact, at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. And I've prepared some notes for you that you can... I hope use, uh, make, make some notations, and let this be a guide for you in the future because the things that I'm going to talk to you about today are historic principles of Christianity that have been shared and experienced and passed on since the first century, and it's for you and I to enjoy these elementary truths for ourselves and also to be sharing them with others. Hebrews 5, verse 12 says, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, it's important for us to realize that the author of the book of Hebrews, first of all, is unknown. There are many who assume it could be the Apostle Paul. Others think it may be Barnabas or Silas or someone else, but the book itself does not indicate who is its author. And so we, we agree, and historically, uh, the church has embraced the book of Hebrews as written by a, a profound, articulate leader of the first century. But we know this, that the writer wrote the book to the Jews. He wrote it to Jews living throughout the Middle East and in the then-known world, and he particularly wrote it to Hebrew Christians, Jewish believers. And he tells them, now think about it, they're steeped in religion, they're Jews, and they've grown up with the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament, the, the, the covenants of God, the commandments, the temple, sacrifices, the feasts. They participate on the seventh day at the synagogue. They hear the scriptures read, and they endeavor to follow God. And yet he tells them, you should be teaching this now, but you need to be taught again The elementary truths of Christianity, the first principles of the oracles of God, some versions put it. 
and you need to, to learn these things all over again. He says, you need milk. You can't handle solid food. You're like babies. And you long for milk because you haven't yet learned how to digest solid food because you're not mature. This is what he says to these Hebrew Christians. He says, you're not acquainted enough about the teaching of righteousness. Now, if you study the book of Hebrews, and I would encourage you to read through it, it's fascinating, you'll find that he has a simple theme. Jesus is superior. That's what he tells them. Jesus is superior. Now, why would he have to say that? Well, to the non-believing Jew, they don't necessarily embrace Jesus yet. And to the believing Jew, they're so steeped in religion and tradition that many Jewish Christians in the first century thought that maybe they needed to join their Christianity with their Judaism. And maybe they needed to mingle the two together. They had so many wonderful ceremonies and festivals and traditions that many of them thought, maybe, maybe we need to reach back. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says, you need to understand that Jesus is superior. He's superior, number one, to angels. He's superior, number two, to Moses and to Joshua, to Old Testament leaders. Jesus is superior to the high priest. In fact, he calls him our great high priest. And he's, he says, Jesus is superior to the high priest. In what way is Jesus superior? Well, do you realize the high priest on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, would take blood into the temple? He'd go through the holy place into the Holy of Holies, and he first would sprinkle blood onto the Ark of the Covenant for himself, for his own sins. And then he would sprinkle blood for all the nation of Israel. Do you realize Jesus didn't need to sprinkle blood for himself as a high priest? Why not? Because he was sinless. He was tested at all points just like we are, but without sin. No guile was found in his mouth. Jesus is a superior high priest. Jesus is superior to the law and Levitical practice. And finally, the writer of Hebrews says even this, Jesus is superior to Abraham, the father of faith. Jesus is superior. He's the best. And so then he tells them, you should be able to teach about the elementary things, the simple things, so you can go on to maturity. And do you know what maturity is in relationship to God? It's understanding that Jesus is superior. Jesus is enough. Jesus paid it all. You don't need anyone or anything else. That's really the end of the whole argument of the, of the writer of the book of Hebrews is you can be satisfied and you can be steadfast and sure in Jesus. You don't need anything more. It's true. It's that simple. And so he says, I want you to grow up. Now, here it is, the beginning of a new year, 2023. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. It's a time right now 
where we're celebrating a, a, a holiday. We commemorate like we have birthdays and holidays and festivals. We have these times in our lives when we look back and we take account of where we are and we look forward to where we're going. Do any of you do that? I do. This is a time when many people will make resolutions. They'll make commitments. We know many of us will carry them out for a day or two, a week or two, a, few, a month. But we'll, we'll, we'll realize something in our life is amiss and we'll, we'll endeavor to make a change. And this is a time that many of us will do that, right? This is an interesting time for me. Uh, I just celebrated my birthday last month, my physical birthday. I turned 64. But 50 years ago, this year, 2023, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. 1973, I was 14 years old, not raised in a Christian home, raised in a Roman Catholic home, but it was a non-believing home. We were religious, but we didn't know Jesus. And I left the comforts of my home, and I found salvation in Jesus Christ 50 years ago. 50 is significant. In the Old Testament, at every 50th year, they would have a jubilee. It was a time of fullness. It was a time of, of, of the extinguishing of debts. It was a time to let captives go free. Fifty in the Bible means fullness. David wanted to build a house for God, a temple. He had a beautiful palace. And he looked up on the hill and he said, oh, that I could build a house for God up on that hill, Mount Moriah, where Abraham had offered up his son Isaac. And he, he hiked up the hill from the city of David. He took the trek up to the top of the hill. And there, there is the rock, the rock that projects from the earth where Abraham laid his son down on that great stone and tied him up and took the knife and raised it because God said, I want you to sacrifice for me your one and only son because God wanted to see if Abraham really loved him. And as Abraham was ready to strike, God said, stop. Now I know, I know that you love me more than anything. And there in the thicket is a ram. And Isaac said, Father, there's, there's a ram for the sacrifice. It was on that place, Mount Moriah, that David hiked up. And there was a threshing floor. That's, that's an area where a farmer would bring his grain and his wheat and he would, he, would, he, he would process it. It was a piece of property owned by a farmer by the name of Aruna. The threshing floor of Aruna. And David went to him and he said, I want to buy this piece of ground because I want to build a house for God. Aruna said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to give it to you. If you want it for the temple, I'm going to give it to you. David said, not so. I will not give to God a gift that costs me nothing. Think about that. 
That's profound. And how much, do you know how much he paid him for it? 50 pieces of silver. Fullness. The full price, it was a full purchase of the land for the house of God. And then you go to the New Testament, and Jesus dies, and he rises from the dead. He dies on Passover, and 50 days later is the day of what? The day of Pentecost. It means 50. Fullness. And what happens on the day of Pentecost? God pours out his spirit in fullness on the church. So I'm excited about my 50th year as a believer. And I look back, and I recollect, and I take account, an inventory of where I am today, and I look forward. And I hope all of you will do that with me today, in a sense, as we take a spiritual inventory. Because the writer of Hebrews says there are certain foundational principles of Christianity that we should know, that we should have experienced, and that we should be passing on to others. You see, there are churches that exist where the person who stands at the front is clergy, and the people that sit out there in pews or in seats are the laity, clergy, laity, and the clergy does ministry and the laity listen and follow. But that's not the church that Jesus started. Jesus started a church where leaders equip believers so believers can do the work of the ministry. So we can be busy in our communities and into all the world to turn it right side up until Jesus comes. That's the purpose for which the church is created. And so the mature believer teaches other new believers or disciples the basics. And I hope that's what you want to be. You know, at 14 years of age, with no support from my family, they were not interested in my born-again experience. I wasn't a threat because I was 14. So when I told my dad that he needed Jesus in his life, he sort of scoffed, but he wasn't threatened by me. Sort of like Jesus when he's at the temple at 12 years old and he's asking questions of the lawyers and the teachers of the law. And he's listening to them, the Bible says. And then they ask him questions and he answers. And they said, we have never seen wisdom like this. Remember? That's when he said to his parents, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business when they came back after three days having left town to go home and they realized he wasn't with them. And Mary even said, she said, don't you realize how, how worried, how troubled your father and I have been? Your father, Joseph, and me, Mary, your mother. And Jesus said, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? I believe this is when Jesus really realized who he was and what he was for. He really knew. And he let his parents know that he understood his divine mission. Fully man, fully God, confounding those in the temple that day. And so God wants us to share our faith. He wants us to impact the lives of others. He calls us to learn how to feed ourselves. When you first become a believer, 
someone will feed you, just like when you become born as a human being. Someone has to help you. But the goal of a new believer is to learn to feed ourselves and then ultimately to learn how to feed others. And then some of us may be called by God into a leadership role in the body of Christ, but that's the exception, not the rule. But we're all called to minister or to serve others. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 6 and look at verses 1 and 2, and let's see what these foundational teachings are because the writer of Hebrews enumerates them. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites or baptisms and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So here are six foundational teachings that according to the writer of Hebrews, all of us should understand, all of us should have experienced or be experiencing, and all of us should be able to share these with other people. Now, you may want to take some notes because there'll be a test later. And the test won't be administered by me, but it will be administered probably by both the Lord and by the Holy Spirit who's encouraging us to move on, to make progress, to make a difference. Let's look at them. You can jot them down. Hopefully you have something you can write with. Number one, the first foundational teaching is repentance from acts that lead to death. Number two is faith in God or faith towards God. Number three, instruction about baptisms, plural. Number four, laying on of hands. Number five, resurrection of the dead. And number six, eternal judgment. If I understand this passage, what this says is that each of us should have a good handle on these six elementary teachings. They're the milk. This is milk. This is not solid food. And so as we examine ourselves and as we take spiritual inventory, we could ask, and it doesn't matter whether you're maybe 14, as I was when I committed my life to Christ, or 40. Or 84, we need to take inventory. Have you experienced these? Do you understand them? Are you sharing them? That's my question. So we're going to look at them quickly this morning. Number one, repentance from acts leading to death and faith in God. Some Bible scholars interpret the passage this way. They say each of these is grouped by two. Two, two, and two. And so repentance from acts leading to death and faith in God is the first set. Now, I certainly agree with that reality that the first two really are joined. It may be true of the others, but I think it's more our way of categorizing as human beings. But the first two go together. 
Repent from acts that lead to death and have faith in God. Now, interestingly, I believe there are specific questions in the New Testament raised for each of these six foundational teachings. There are biblical questions raised that when you answer it, you'll be answering the question relative to the teaching, the foundational teaching. So the question regarding repenting and having faith in God is a simple question. It's raised in Acts chapter 16 by the Philippian jailer who after an earthquake and seeing Paul and Silas set free from their chains in prison says this, what must I do to be saved? That's where we start. That's the first question. You might want to jot it down. What must I do to be saved? And Paul answers, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house. When Jesus came... When his ministry begins, Mark records it, chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. Think about that. Repent and believe. This says we need to repent from acts that are leading to death, and we need to believe or have faith in God. Do you see it? It's real simple, real straightforward. So acts that lead to death can be both acts of sin, and they can also be religious acts. What leads us to death? Everything that leads us away from our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Sin separates us from God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So we need to repent of these acts that lead us to death. Now, there are people who are religious, and they're so caught up in, in their process that they, they forget about the relationship necessary. We don't just want to attend church and, 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 and check boxes off of things that we're doing right. We want to recognize that we need to repent of what we've done wrong and have faith in God and put our trust in him who provided the Redeemer for us, Jesus Christ. So this is where we start. So we must repent. Now to repent isn't to have remorse. It's not to be sorry. See, the Holy Spirit is with human beings today. He's with you now, if you're a believer or not. He's with you. He's with the world, and he's convincing the world of their sinfulness. The Holy Spirit is doing that. And he's calling us to repent. So when we repent, we're basically doing something very simple. We're having a change of mind. To repent literally means to change your mind and recognize that I must change my behavior. That's number one. i got to change my mind and change my behavior. Now, most of us know that it's possible to think differently, but we know it's often hard to act differently. And I want to tell you that if you'll repent, so you're moving along in a certain direction and you stop you're convicted, you're convinced by the Holy Spirit, it's not right, it's not okay, something's wrong, and you stop, and you think, and in your mind you realize, i got to change directions. So you stop, and you turn 180 degrees 
away from your path, and you're turning back to God's path. You're repenting. You're turning. You're having a change of mind, and now you're going to endeavor to walk toward God. And I can assure you that when you do that, God will help you, and the outward changes will be the result of God's help in your life. can't do it by yourself. We can't live the life of God without the life of God. You've got to have God in you to do this. But that's exactly what's taken place. And so we repent, and we put faith in God rather than, our, than in ourselves. So repent, turn toward God, and then believe. We need to believe what God says and quit believing what we think. This is the first step, and this is how we all get saved. The Bible says he's given everyone, every human being, a measure of faith. Romans chapter 12. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It says, faith comes by hearing the word of God. It says, the just shall live by faith. And Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through what? Through faith. So we got to repent and have faith in God. That's Number one and number two, but we'll call that number one. That's the first principle. And that we need to be able to share with others. We have to have experienced it. I hope you all have today. And if you haven't yet, all you need to do is surrender. All you need to do is stop and turn around and start walking toward God and turn your eyes on Jesus. And God will help you and he will forgive you and you can make him the Lord of your life. So let's move on to number two. Instruction about baptisms, plural, not baptism. Now, some will argue, will say, wait a minute, I, I believe Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 that there's only one spirit and there's one baptism. He did say that. There is one baptism. But this says there's baptisms, plural. And if you were to exhaust the Word of God, you'll find that there are more than three baptisms. But there are three New Testament baptisms that are directed at new believers at disciples who follow Jesus. There are three that are foundational. And there is an order to them, but I'll tell you, sometimes God interrupts the order. And there are many cases of that throughout Scripture. Each one has an agent. That's a person that does the baptizing. Each one has an element. That's the entity into which we're baptized or the element into which we'd be baptized. And each one has a candidate. And the candidate is the baptizee. So there's a baptizer, a baptizee, and something they're getting baptized into. And there are three different baptisms that concern us. What are the questions? The first question, 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you yourselves know that you're the temple of God and God's spirit lives in you? The Bible teaches that if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, they are none of his. We don't belong to Jesus if the Holy Spirit doesn't live in us. So the first baptism that takes place when you're born again, when you repent and you have faith towards God, the first baptism is the baptism by the Holy Spirit where he takes you and me and puts us into the body of Christ. That's the first baptism. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit takes up residence. He lives in us. We're the temple of God, and the Spirit of God lives in us. So the Holy Spirit is the baptizer. 
The entity into which we're baptized is the body of Christ, and the candidate is the new believer. Now, if you're a Christian today, if you've been born again, not if you as an infant were baptized, not if someone else made a decision for you, but if at some point in your life you said, I have decided to follow Jesus, and you did that of your own free will, understanding that Jesus paid it all for your sin, when you did that, the Holy Spirit came and lived in your life. He's in you. And nothing can change that. But there's another baptism mention and another question. Acts chapter 10 says, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? Paul asked the question. So what about baptism in water? Yeah, that's an important one too. Is it more important than the first? No, the first is most important. And the first happens at automatically when you're born again. When you receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. But Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the nations and baptize them. Baptize them in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's a command of Jesus. Jesus was baptized by John, and he followed that pattern. And then he sent his disciples, and he sends us to baptize people. Why get baptized in water? Well, it's simply a symbolic representation of our association or identification with Jesus Christ. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And when we're baptized in water, it's a picture of dying to our old way of life. When we go down into the water, it's like going into a tomb. And when we come out of the water, we're being raised, like Jesus was raised, to a new life. So death, burial, and resurrection. That's the picture you say, well, I haven't done it. I don't think it's important. Well, the writer of Hebrews would say that you're really not even a developing baby because these are things that the mature have already done and are teaching others to do. We practice these things. That's water baptism. So the agent is a believer. A, a believer will baptize others. It could be a leader, but it could also be a believer. As a believer, if you're with someone and they give their life to Christ and there's water there and they say, well, what, what hinders me from being baptized right now? You'd say, nothing. Let's do it. Baptize them. Submerse them. It means immerse. 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 Submerge them in the water and say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you based on your confession of faith that Jesus is Lord and baptize them. Believers baptize the element is water. We baptize people in water. And the candidate is the new Christian. And so if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized in water, I would encourage you to do that. Because as you're taking inventory of your life, if you haven't been baptized yet, you're just saying, well, you know, I'm, just, I'm kind of putting God on hold in that area. See, this isn't about church. It's not about denominations. It's not about opinions. This is about what the Bible teaches and what Jesus said. And I want to follow Jesus. Somebody wrote, take the whole world, but give me Jesus. Is that your attitude? Do you want to be like him? I do. And then the next baptism. Here's the third. Here's the third question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You say, wait a minute, Jim. You said a minute ago that we received the Holy Spirit when we became born again. I did say that, didn't I? In fact, it's interesting. In John chapter 14, Jesus told the disciples, the Holy Spirit's with you, but he will be in you. 
And then in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, he appears to the disciples, and they believe in him. They believe he's risen from the dead. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So up till then, the Holy Spirit was with them, just like he's with every human being, convincing them that they need God. But Jesus hasn't died yet on the cross, and until he dies and raises from the dead, nobody can be born again. The born-again experience of those apostles was after Jesus' resurrection when he breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now they've got it, right? They've got the Holy Spirit in their lives. And yet, if we read on, in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells them, now I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait there. And I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized. He said, you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So for 10 days, they waited in an upper room, and they prayed, and they sought God. And then on the day of Pentecost, when it was fully come, the 50th day, completeness, fullness, the Holy Spirit fell, as prophesied in Joel chapter 2. And there was fire like, like tongues that rested over their heads. And they all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were empowered by God. You say, well, I don't know about that experience. I don't know if I like that. I've heard of some churches that do this and that and the other thing. Forget what some churches do. Focus on the Bible. Do you want to follow Jesus or do you want to get bogged down and tied up because of good or bad interpretation? Jesus says there's a baptism in the Holy Spirit. And he says, you wait before you go witness until you're endued with power. And when the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses. Do you know why so many Christians are ineffective witnesses today? All over this city, all over our nation, all around the world, it's because we haven't simply obeyed Jesus. Some of us haven't been baptized in water. It's like, well, I don't like that one. I don't think I'll check that box. Uh, we haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable about that. I don't know what might happen. You know what Jesus said? He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? So you don't need to go to a prayer service and have some particular process to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You just have to ask. You just say, Father in heaven, I want to be baptized with your Holy Spirit. I want to be endued with power. I want to be an effective witness. Jesus said this baptism was for me, and I should wait until I receive it. That's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Who's the agent? Who does the baptizing? It's Jesus. John the Baptist says, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's what John said in John chapter 1 and 2. The entity into which we're baptized is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's already in us, but there's overflowing levels of the Holy Spirit that we need. And I'll be honest with you, when I'm out and I feel a tug on my heart that I need to say to, something to someone, sometimes it's a little daunting. Sometimes I'm a little nervous. Sometimes I'm a bit frightened. It doesn't matter what kind of knowledge we have stored up. 
because knowledge profits nothing. What we need to do is obey the still, small voice of God. But if he's empowered you, and there's an intensity about your life, and an excitement, and an anticipation that God wants to use me where I live, and where I work, and what I do, then when God tugs on our heart and says, ask them this, tell them that, you'll do it. But you, you need and you want this fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's so important. The candidate is the believer. A Christian is a candidate for this baptism. Number three is the laying on of hands. We'll go a little quicker now. The laying on of hands. The question from the New Testament, James 5, 14. Is anyone among you sick? Is anybody sick? You see, the laying on of hands has been utilized in the Old Testament, in Jesus' ministry, in the New Covenant. Jesus often lays hands on people. He touches people. He ministers to people. In fact, it says so many times in the New Testament, you remember these passages, it says he touched them. It doesn't mean that just there was just, just some spiritual thing that went on, like waves that emanated from his body. He put his hands on them. One time, and you've studied it, and John, as you're moving through, he took the dirt and he mixed it with his own saliva, and he rubbed it in the blind man's eye. He touched him. He put his hands on him. And James says, if there's any sick, call for the elders, the leaders of the church, and let them pray over them. And they would lay hands on them, and they would anoint them with oil. They'd touch them and put oil on them, pour it on their heads, and they'd pray that the prayer of faith would save the sick. In Mark 16, 18, it says, believers will lay hands on the sick, and the sick people will get well. So have you experienced it? Maybe you've been prayed for and been healed. Or maybe you've prayed for someone else. See, we need to understand it. We need to experience it, and we need to do it. Lay hands on one another. So there are basically four purposes of laying on of hands. Number one, divine healing. Number two, to bestow the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. And you'll find it over and over in the book of Acts. If you're reading your Bible, in the book of Acts, they lay their hands on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul says, remember Timothy, Timothy was a young minister. Remember when, the, when they laid hands on you and you received those spiritual gifts? Remember when the leaders laid hands on you, Timothy? So we can communicate gifts by the laying on of hands. Number three is just to bless others. And this is really popular in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, fathers would lay hands on their children and they would pray, pray, pray prayers of blessing over them. Laying on of hands. And then finally, number four is sending, to send people. When I was pastoring here in Salt Lake a number of times, I went overseas a number of different places. And on those occasions, our church would always gather around us. We'd stand down, and all the believers would come. We didn't just need leaders. We needed believers. We needed people that had faith, that trusted Jesus. And we wanted to put their hands on us and pray for us that God would send us to do a good work. So we send people out by laying hands on them, and we ordain people. We ordain them. We appoint them to offices of leadership by the laying on of hands. That's number three. Number four, the resurrection of the dead. Number four and number five, which are really number five and, and six if you're tracking with me, just for those of you that, that aren't, I don't mean to confuse you, but for those of you that are 
I want you to know that I understand the numbers are a little jumbled because I put one and two together. Number four and number five are both future events, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We need to understand the resurrection of the dead, and we need to be able to tell others about it. The resurrection of the dead is twice mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, who the third day rose from the dead. That was a creed of the early church. Again, they said, I believe in the resurrection of the body. They're not talking in that case about Jesus' body. They're talking about our bodies. We believe in a resurrection. There is no other world religion that boasts such a claim that we will be resurrected. Only Christianity. And so in Acts 15, 12, here's the question, the New Testament question. How can some of you say there is no resurrection? So if you tell me today, Jim, I'm a Christian, you're here, you say I'm a believer, you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you can't be a believer. Because the foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the foundation. And if Jesus isn't raised, we're still in our sins. It's the theme of 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is what's called the first fruits, the first, the first fruits on the tree, and then us. We, too, will be resurrected. And this is the most mentioned subject in the New Testament, resurrection, primarily the resurrection of Jesus, but also our resurrection. The resurrection was the basis of Jesus' post-resurrection teaching. That's what he taught about. I'm raised from the dead. Fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. It was the criteria for choosing new apostles. You remember Judas hung himself? you got to choose a new apostle now. One of the criteria is they had to be a witness to the resurrection. And it's the basic theme of apostolic teaching through the centuries. So not only did Jesus raise from the dead, we will be raised. Real quickly, here's the two resurrections. First one, at his coming, when Jesus comes. It says the dead will rise first, and then we will be caught up. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 and 53 says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will not all die. There will be people alive when Jesus comes. But we will all be changed, Paul says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise incorruptible, imperishable, and we who are alive will be changed. So this is a, a unique aspect of, of Christian resurrection, is that the body if you're dead, will be raised and changed. If you're alive, you'll be changed. And you'll be changed from mortal, perishable, to imperishable. You'll be given a glorified body. You'll move from dishonor to honor, from weakness to power. Again, from mortal to spiritual. That's at his coming. And then there's another resurrection at the end of the millennium. Jesus is coming soon, and when he comes, he's going to establish a thousand-year reign in the earth. For a thousand years, he will reign in the earth from Jerusalem. And at the end of that time, 
there will be a judgment and there will be a resurrection, which is interesting. Jesus talks about it in John 5, verse 28 and 29. We don't even need to go to Revelation, but it tells us there too. He says, don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who were in their graves will hear his voice and they will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those that have done evil will rise to be condemned. So there is a resurrection, not just for Christians. There's a resurrection for everybody. Everybody's ultimately going to be raised, some to life and some to separation from God. So that's the resurrection. Next is, and last, eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. And the question is found in Genesis 18 is, Abraham is negotiating with God regarding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says to God, far be it from you, God, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And then he asks this question, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The judge of all the earth. There is a judgment coming. And it's both a positive and a negative judgment that will be executed. We will give an account. In fact, all people will give an account before God. And it happens in three judgments. The first is called the judgment seat of Christ. This is for believers only. There will not be a non-believer at this judgment. And this is where Christians will receive a commendation or a reward from Jesus or correction. Romans 14.10 says, we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You say, I thought we, we get to bypass judgment. No, there's still going to be judgment, but it should be condemnation if you are commendation if you're walking faithfully with the Lord, or there could be some correction there. It's explained in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm not going to get into it today. We don't have time. The next is the great white throne judgment. You may have heard of it. It's the one where John in Revelation sees God seated on the throne. It's the judgment of the lost. It says the lost all appeared before God. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. I won't read it, but you might check it out and note it in your notes. In John 3:18, Jesus says, whoever doesn't believe is condemned already. You're already condemned if you reject Jesus. And and John says, I saw, this, I saw all people, small and great, standing before God. And it says the books were opened and another book. Anybody know what the other book is? It's the book of life. That's something that you should know and you should share with others. The books are going to be opened that detail the activities of everyone's life. And God is going to review those activities with every human being. But there's another book called the book of life. And it says, the dead were judged based upon the things written in the books. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, they were cast in the lake of fire, prepared not for the people, but prepared for the devil and his angels. I would like to have my name in the book of life. How about you? Do you know how you get your name in the book of life, in God's book? Well, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't buy it. You just need to surrender to the one who paid the price 
to have your name put in that book. His name is Jesus Christ. He paid it all. And all you need to do is invite him into your life. Repent and have faith towards God and let him begin to turn you around because he will. And then there's one last judgment that I'll just mention as we close. And that's recorded in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Peter says, it is time that judgment begins with the family of God, the household of God. He says that in the present tense. He says, it's time for judgment to start right now. Why are we waiting for the judgment seat of Christ? Why are we waiting for the great white throne judgment? Why not start to examine ourselves now? Why not take spiritual inventory today? Why not submit ourselves before the word unto Jesus? Because God wants us to be improving. He wants us to be progressing. He wants us to be maturing. He wants us to be turning our eyes on him and seeing he's everything that we need. And so the conclusion of the whole matter as Jen comes back is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. It's the last verse of the last chapter of his book on wisdom. The wisest man that ever lived, according to Jesus, says this. Here's the end of the matter. Since all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God is going to bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or whether evil. Let me just reassure you, if you're a Christian and you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, that judgment has already taken place for you. He's not going to bring that up again. He's not going to take you back and say, well, I know you asked me to forgive you of this and you put this under my blood, but I want to remind you that this wasn't a very appropriate thing. Never going to happen. You're forgiven. But for those that are unwilling to surrender at the foot of the cross, judgment will take place. And evil deeds and selfish deeds will be exposed. Today, your slate can be clean. Your slate can be clean if you're not yet a believer, or even as a believer that maybe has been living a self-centered life. You can rededicate your life today, or you can make a first-time dedication, opening your heart to God, repenting and turning toward Him. And He will come in and Even though your sins are red like scarlet, he'll make them white as snow. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.